Welcome to Earth, a love story. Written and read by Robin Lassiter. Chapter 12 The doors to the world of the wild self are few but precious. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much you almost cannot bear it, that is a door. Clarissa Pinkola Estes Jupiter and I are living together, settled into separate bedrooms until we both stabilize and individuate and ultimately separate onto our separate paths. We're being so kind to each other, so conscious of what we're both suffering. We're finally present and grateful for each moment we have together, now that it's over. We hope we will stay friends. Unlike so many times in my past, this ending is not a burn it all down and run away in the night to find a place to lick my wounds and rebuild myself in secret kind of ending. When I was young and wounded and broken, I ran. Now I am staying, lovingly tending to this death, and that has been the hardest part. I love him so much, and I so deeply love the dream of us. I love that someday we would get a little place in the country together, and I would share the magic world of bees with him, and he would be an artist and build big weird sculptures in the barn, and we would grow old together and laugh on the porch at the strange sweetness of it all. I finally found the love of my life, and with the death of us, all of my small, personal dreams died too. Being together while not being together is sometimes so acutely excruciating that all I can do is lay on the floor and let the shuddering pain roll through me. And I do. I lie down and let it take me. I feel it all as deeply as I can, as an act of service to the love between us. This initiation was what initiations always are. Less a hero's journey, this, and more Inanna's descent. At every gate into the underworld, I shed a piece of me. Seven times through seven gates, I shattered and let go, so that I arrived in Ereshkigal's chambers, naked and scorched. And her, the great round, the uncried cry, slaughtered me hung me dead on the meat hook. These are the moments that I understand that it is not Anana that I am most devoted to, but Ereshkigal. This dark feminine is my still, rooted, deep, and trustworthy sister. She's known her share of pain, and she knows that there's nothing to do about it but feel it. I can't fully express the breathtaking grief, and I wish, for your sake as well as mine, that me and Jupiter and this book would all have a big happy Hollywood ending. Instead, we will have something truer, which is a mix of all the things. Great love and great loss. Pain and difficulty and transcendence and sweet spring days all mashed up together because that's what life is like. I think I'm even beginning to understand a little about joy, too, after surrendering fully to this, my biggest grief. I see that joy is terrifying when it's hooked into someone I love. Joy that is enmeshed with or suckered onto a tremulous dream of a life feels unbearably dangerous. Joy that clings and requires certainty and an unchanging landscape is brittle, breakable, 
too vulnerable to ravaging. There's a deeper joy though, I think, something that is beyond condition, like love. And I love this place, Earth, and the Western Colorado high desert, the sage and the lichen on the rocks, the tiny desert flowers and the birds and the ants and the snakes are my heart. I love the rivers too. We are so close to the origins of these two rivers, the Colorado and the Gunnison, so close to where they tumble out of the high mountains that they roar and roll and crash when the spring melt starts. In summer and fall they slide endlessly along, powerful and flat and glassy smooth between their banks. As the year approaches its turn, they shine speckled with a million small icebergs. In the deep, dark cold of winter, they crack and moan and thud and scrape and breathe and heave against their edges and the wind whips crystal snow snakes across the icy surface. Their power is intimidating. It keeps me at a distance, but I watch them and nature reminds me again how to move with the cycles and the seasons. Do the rivers cling to warm summer days? Do they fear the dark, still, cold times? No, they are wiser than I am, and I turn my ear to their wisdom. Jupiter and I take precious, heightened because we know they will soon be our last, Sunday drives together. And today we are driving through the red rock sandstone canyons of the Dolores River Valley. It is a place so big and grand that it reminds me, in a pleasant way, of my insignificance. The bluffs topped with sheer cliffs rise hundreds of feet and roll endlessly towards us from the distance as we move along the mostly empty two-lane highway. It is a perfect early spring day. The sky is that cobalt color that only happens in the west, and there are shiny, white, bubbling, round clouds, and we can see three ravens and a golden eagle wheeling together against the blue. The road narrows, and the sandstone leans closer, and we come into shadow. We aren't talking, each engaged with our own thoughts, and I'm thinking about humanity and earth and why it's all so important. I know what the four who are one told me in the regression. The crown jewel, they'd said. I'm rolling that over and over in my brain. The crown jewel. The crown jewel. The crown jewel. I'm curious, searching, pondering. What is it? What is it about this place? What is it about humans? Why go to all this trouble? Why is this important? Why are we so important? Suddenly I gasp and unconsciously put the back of my hand against my mouth and feel my throat clamp from the emotion of it. Jupiter asks me what's wrong but I just shake my head. I can't speak because at that moment I see it all in a flash. I see it and I feel it. The true nature of humanity and how breathtakingly beautiful it is. And I'll tell you what, it isn't our striving for perfection our advancements, our logical brains, or our slick technology that takes my breath away, although that's in there as part of our beautiful whole. I see that we are artists. I see that we are billions of tiny creator gods. We are progenitors, alchemizing insubstantial, ephemeral thought into concrete material form. 
We grind rock into powder and mix it with animal fat and smear it onto cave walls to paint the images that flicker behind our eyelids. We dance and drum and adorn ourselves with bones and sticks and leaves and halos of flowers and tattoos of sickle moons on our foreheads and elegant hats and woven shawls and we spend hours embroidering tiny scenes onto a piece of denim to patch the holes in the knees of our jeans. We have an idea for a wheel or a bridge or a painting or a song or a medicine or a home or a ship with two red sails to take us over the horizon and we latch onto that vision or it latches onto us and then we create it and it exists in the world. We build perfect pyramids of massive stone to house our dead and interact with the celestial realms. We build rings of stones and stand inside and watch how the stars swirl in big repeating patterns and try to make sense of it all. We build exalted cathedrals and paint their ceilings with heavenly scenes to draw our gaze skyward. We learn which plants awaken us and which kill us, and then we tightrope walk the line between those two until we reach transcendence. We're always looking up, reaching, striving, climbing, trying to get high enough so that we can touch God. And we are desperately messy. Our true nature is chaotic and riotous in its color and texture. We have an idea for a way to be in the world for justice and goodness and peace and education and we put systems in place to try to get there. We stutter step into the future, failing gloriously and ascending again. We make terrible mistakes. We are cruel. We watch the suffering of others and we suffer ourselves. And eventually someone stands up and says no more. And then we change. We writhe and contort and stretch and reach and we become better. We are a symphony a collective yearning to rise up. We are so heartbreakingly earnest. I know that it's all the rage right now to focus on how bad we are, how much harm we're doing, how there's too many of us. We are secretly hoping that our technology will save us while at the same time creating a repeating myth where it decides to rise up and destroy us instead because it can't, by its very nature, contain the best parts of us. We want to tamp down the messy, wild, unruly parts of ourselves and evolve into something sleek, silver, shiny, clean, orderly. And yes, we have so much work to do to become the most beautiful versions of ourselves and honor our bodies and each other and our planet, but God, what a horrible sin it would be to lose our true nature in the process. We are so beautiful, and in that flash I see us completely, and I am agape at our splendor. As the weeks go on, I start to feel a strange itch. While I'm going about the mundane tasks of my day, it consumes me. I'm washing the dishes, thinking about my mission. I'm taking out the trash, thinking about the gorgeous, special tapestry of humanity. I'm sitting on a huge rock overlooking the Grand Valley below wondering if I'm really here to do what they told me I'm here to do, and if so, how on earth do I do that? I walk over to a tiny puddle left over from the last rain, hiding under an overhang of sandstone. The sun hasn't baked the puddle to dust yet, although all around its edges are little squares of dried earth with cracks in between where the water has evaporated away. I want to put my hands into the mud and smear it on my face and thighs and devote myself to the planet and her people and animals and all of the other beings 
seen and unseen, that inhabit this crowded place. I want to pull it all close, to gather it in, and to stand with it surrounding me. I love it here so much that I want to become it. I want to morph into a bright red salamander and slide into the tiny muddy puddle and disappear under the rock and sleep all surrounded by earth until I remember who I really am. I am so deeply in love, and it's like my mother and my child all wrapped up together, and I am in the center, with love as my only calling. I don't disappear like a salamander into the muddy sliver under the shadow of the rock. Instead, I pick up a tiny piece of wet earth, roll it into a ball between my fingers, and place it on my tongue. I let it dissolve and separate into a million sugar crystals and rub them gently against the roof of my mouth. Then I sigh and go home and do laundry and think about my supposed galactic origins and the spheres and the dreams and floating away from my body, and I think I accept it all as much as one can. Maybe it's just a big metaphor. Maybe the aliens and the four who are one are other aspects of me or us or reflections of humanity's future. Maybe it's literal, and my soul typically doesn't incarnate here, and I have extraterrestrial origins and I came here to work on my big grand project. Even if that is the reality, there is also the literal truth of the earthly heritage of my physical body. My ancestors. My terrestrial origins. My family. I know about my ancestors because of the big genealogy books I flipped through in my childhood home. I know that my ancestor is Daniel Boone, a pioneer who carved the words Boone's true friend into the stock of his rifle and said, I can't say as ever I was lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. And my ancestor is a Cherokee man who refused to serve on a jury because he was guilty of the same crime as the man they were trying. He didn't know that spotlighting deer with an old swinging lantern in those days, was illegal. And he'd done it on several occasions, so agreed to be a juror only after paying the $5 fine for the crime. My ancestor is a woman who named her children sweet, hopeful, whimsical, watery names like brook and spring and river, and had 13 of them but five died. My ancestor is a slave owner in Virginia. My ancestor is a woman who was born into a coal camp in Kentucky and was given away as a little child to suffer her whole life without abandonment. My ancestor is a man walking through the mists, painted blue, dancing between the worlds and bringing back truths and visions from the in-between. My ancestor is a woman holding a double-barreled shotgun against a riot of men trying to wrench the preciousness from her daughters. My ancestor is an ancient being weaving raven feather robes and carving tiny hollow bone flutes and burying her dead, grieving and suffering, just like me. My ancestors fought bloody and brave and bold and cowering and whimpering, and they had peaceful days and bright days and dark days, and I hold inside of me every one of those days. They were cowards and saints and angels and sinners, they are situated behind me like an endless line of Russian nesting dolls, advancing towards me from out of the murky past. I contain my great-grandmother's agony, and my grandmother's hope, and my grandfather's sins, and my mother's strength. I am the container for all of their betrayals and abandonments, and love and ferocity, and their integrity and adventuresome spirits. 
I am a copy of a copy of a copy, a repeating ghost of their sufferings and joy, and I am the multitude of them screaming into the void, pressing against the unknown and finding exaltation and shit and mundanity and glory. They wheel around inside of me and careen off of my inner walls with their own agendas and hopes and dreams and fears, and I am a vehicle for their desires, unresolved. For so many years I just wanted to go home, without knowing exactly what that meant. I wanted off this planet. I wanted to return to a place of ease and love and clarity. Or oblivion. Whatever. Anywhere but here. I just wanted to rest. But somehow, now, having wandered through myself and having found some peace there, this place and her people and her animals and the unseens who also share our home, are settling into my heart and I am bowled over with tenderness. Now all I can think about is getting even deeper, rooting further down, arriving here in my body. The more I accept the truth of these others, this non-human intelligence that vibrates me up and shows me the view from above, the more I'm getting this real call down to earth feeling. It's a paradox, like everything. Maybe I have incarnated from elsewhere in order to be a part of humanity moving from the paradigm of evolution through suffering to the paradigm of evolution through joy and creativity. But also, my human ancestors who bore the shadow of me forward into their future are my literal, physical, corporeal truth. I can hear them now as I'm falling asleep. There's the galactic, electronic, ticking and whirring and toning in my right ear. Now in my left ear there are whispers of song, ancient drum beats, warm, feminine, murmuring voices. There is high, keening wailing and low, resonant humming, and it's all shimmering with the essence of Earth and her people. They are singing me the secrets of my heritage as I am drawn down into sleep, deep and rooted and bathed in their warmth. I start to wonder if there's a clause in my contract that says I can immigrate here. Something that says my soul can decide to stick around to have a say in how this all plays out. Whether the final act is glorious or Armageddon-y, is a gentle, unexpected beginning or a fiery end, I'm invested. I'm hooked. I'm in. One afternoon I make my way down to the river to pray and find a flat rock that I can sit on while I lean against the bank. It is early April, just warm enough for soft, wet, crumpled leaves to unfurl from out of their swollen buds, and for fruit trees to erupt in pink and white clouds, and for little blades of fresh green grass to start to push through the soft dirt. I take off my shoes and sit on the rock and let my toes hang off the edge, and I gently press the balls of my feet against the tickle of those soft green spears. I notice to my right a rock partially submerged in the ground. It is half the size of an apple, milky and opaque, with bruises of pink and purple and a shiny inclusion of mica that catches the light and glints silver. When did we first, as humans, I wonder, turn away from our mother? When did we move from the sacred orientation with the feminine, the force that literally births life onto this planet? It was long before the religion that turned a male god into the creator of life, 
defiling the truth and saying instead that the first woman was born, without even the pleasure of sex, from the first man. We've forgotten what she feels like, but she's rising now. She's speaking, moving through me, and I am listening. She is changing me from the inside out and I am done putting up a fight. I trust her. I'm less than a mile downriver of the confluence where the Gunnison was absorbed and assimilated and now they are mingled together, singular, the Colorado. The river is spring swift and lively and sparkling. I lean my back against the earth behind me and I pray another prayer, this time to the earth. I am fully aware of where the last one took me, my prayer to the moon all those years ago, but I don't care. The depth of the love I can hold is worth the height of the pain. I pray to be fully here, with the earth. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. I make a vow, devoting myself to her, and to myself, and to everyone I know and love, and to everyone I don't. I devote myself to her creatures, to the elementals, the spirits, to all of humanity, and while I'm at it, I go ahead and devote myself to all beings everywhere. We're in this together, after all. As I'm praying, I pull my fingers through my mass of curly red hair, and I gather the ones that loose from my scalp. I need a few more, so I reach in and pluck three or four, and then take them all and roll them between my fingers into a fuzzy red ball. It reminds me of the tiny hummingbird nests we found when we were kids woven from hairs fallen from the tails of our paint ponies, black and white and brown. It's a ritual done unconsciously, automatically. I wiggle loose the milky rock from the earth and place in the scar my little roll of hair and gently pull soft soil and the dried mat of last year's grass over it so that it's buried, hidden, and part of the planet. I'm here with you now, I whisper, and I'm not going anywhere. I love you, and I'm staying, as many lifetimes as it takes, come what may. I look out at the river and it seems that it's more brilliant than it was a moment ago. The birds seem to be dancing in the air now, and the pads of my feet touching the tiny green spears of grass feel electrically, exquisitely sensitive, connected to the earth, my home. The valley floor is broad, and in the distance red sandstone cliffs catch the golden afternoon light. Eventually I get up and take the rock with me and bring it home and place it on my altar. I scoot aside my little sculptures of gods and goddesses and I put the rock front and center to remind me every day of my promise and prayer. I know that soon I must leave this place, leave Jupiter, leave behind the realm of my small personal dreams. I have started over so many times in my life, galvanizing myself to forge some new path. I've alchemized my pain into passion and post-traumatic growthed my way into the next chapter of my life a thousand times. I don't know if it's the loss or the grief or the surrender or the vow, but I know I can't do it anymore. I can't start over again, again. No more new towns, no more new homes, no more seeking new love to save me and orient me and give me something to caretake. I don't have it in me. No more up and out now, only down and in. No more leaving, only returning. 
I'm so lucky that I still have my little valley home and family in southern Colorado. I am clear now about my devotion and where it lies. The machine of the world as it is never made sense to me anyway. I'm returning to my home, and I can see now how unbelievably wealthy I am to have a place that is still wild and still full of people I love. My parents created something extraordinary in that valley. They love the land. They spend their time tending to the forests and the garden and the birds and gathering the deer sheds that show up in the spring. They keep track of the families of Turkey that take refuge in the safety of the valley and they count the fuzzy poults every day and grieve if one goes missing. They walk the old worn trails and note dropped owl feathers and bobcat and bear tracks and once or twice a year make the long trek to visit the source place at the origin of the valley. They chop wood and pray for rain. I have built a little dome across the valley from my folks. My mom and I will garden together and put up food for the winter. My dad will teach me to drive the tractor, and I'll get bees and a dog, and maybe a horse or two. I'm returning to something that I've been longing for but seemed lost. Seemed beyond the realm of possibility in our mad world. I am returning to the village to a primal connection with the land and with my people. Someday when my folks are gone, I'll tend to that land that I belong to, to the land that formed me and fed me and raised me. For as long as we're there in that little valley, a small moment for the earth in her long past and long future, but lifetimes for us, lifetimes situated in our own long primordial lineage and long future selves, She'll know that she is loved by her children. And someday, long after the world has changed into whatever it is changing into, maybe someone will stumble across our little valley with its little domes and overgrown gardens and feel the love that we cultivated here. Maybe they will turn their hearts back to the land and her creatures and reanimate the blueprint of this little heaven on earth. Afterward, I am home now. It is late February and it's been a cold, snowy, wintry winter. The pathways are just starting to melt and clear and today it's 54 degrees and I put on my boots and walk from my dome to my folks dome, down the hill through the ponderosas, past the old barn where we used to stack hay in the fall, through the apple tree field, we're planting hawthorns there this spring, and onto the road. The sky is dark and cloudy, and it's that kind of late winter day that feels like it could rain instead of snow, or the wind could blow it all away. My mother is inside baking a peach pie, and my father is taking down an old fence on the hillside around the home he built nearly 50 years ago. I walk up the hill and help pry loose a few big rusty horseshoe nails, and then push and pull and groan the freed up posts out of the ground while he rolls up the barbed wire into a big round. We laugh and tease each other, and on the way back to the dome, he throws an arm around my shoulder, and I tell him again how grateful I am to be here, and how this is heaven on earth, and thank God for it all. In response, he points out a post he couldn't pull up and tells me to take care of that while I'm standing around, and I laugh and we say our goodbyes for the afternoon and I walk back home. The air is full of moisture and I'm walking with my head up and shoulders back and there's a swing in my hips and a freedom in my step that I've been longing for, for years. 
The wind ruddies my face and sharpens my cheekbones, and my hair, half pulled up in a half-done bun, whips around my face, and I think about the me in Hawaii. The me who'd stopped trying to tame her hair and measure her hips against her waist, and who first noticed those tiny, hopeful seedlings of grace. If she could see me now, I think, so inside my alive body, my strong legs and lungs carrying me up the hill to my dome, feeling myself held in the web of my family and the valley and the vast inner and outer ecosystems that were always there, but I couldn't see because I was unaware. I feel like those seedlings have sprouted, and there's nothing better than knowing who I am, nothing better than being where I am, nothing better than feeling my animal, woman body move with the wind and the earth, and my own blown open heart pulling me forward into a gentle future. Sleep is sweet these nights, and I wake up often to lights in the sky and to realizations about life and death and suffering and grief and evolution through joy and creativity. There's just one question, they tell me. Just one question we ask in a myriad of ways. The question boils down to, are we safe? Are we loved? Can we trust life herself moving through us? writhing and contorting us and turning us beautiful if we can make enough space. The aliens were right. Writing this book has bridged the gap between two big blocks of my life. So finally, dear reader, fellow earthling, fellow experiencer of all things deep and real and enchanting, I am speaking directly to you. I pray that you will turn your attention inward turn away from the loud, shimmering, false world and begin to listen to the calls from inside your own bright belly. I hope that you will answer that call, that you will begin to write down your dreams and wrestle with what they are trying to tell you, that you will let Ereshkigal strip away anything that isn't real in your life until you're finally left with nothing but what is. I hope you will begin to sense yourself in the web that holds you and shudders with your victories and challenges. I hope that you will take your sacred interior world seriously, and I hope you will let it change you. I hope you will believe in yourself, in your own experiences, and take your place as a sovereign free member of an extraordinary species. I promise that if you do, you will storytell yourself into being. What does it cost to leave the machine that grinds us first into dollars and then into dust? Why did you come here? Who were you before the world first broke your heart? What will you do, as Mary Oliver asks, with your one wild and precious life? What is the gift on the other side of the death of the small self? You know what it is. For more information or to book a one-on-one session with me, visit honeyheart.org.